0: Today on Quest, depth psychologist, transformational coach, and yoga philosophy teacher, Dr. Leanne Whitney. Life is a quest for logic and reason. It is a quest to find balance between science and faith. Life is a quest for knowledge and understanding. But most importantly, It's a quest for personal discovery. Whatever your quest, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Welcome to Quest. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Todd Fisher, and this is Season 2 of Quest. For those of you that might be new listeners, let me tell you a little about me. I'm the founder of Metatomics and the author of the best-selling book, Metatomics, The Grand Design. I'm a philosopher, a theorist, and a metaphysicist. I'm a perpetual pupil of theology and an expert in comparative religious study. I've also extensively researched the mind-body connection, anatomy, and physiology. I'm a researcher and a storyteller. And in order to tell this story, the research is necessary, and part of the research is the search. And that brings us to why I created the quest podcast. A quest is a search for something. And this podcast will show you how we know what we know through interviews with people that have incredible stories of dedication and perseverance. To me, curiosity is part of what makes us human. And there's still so much we don't know. There's joy in discovery. It's what drives us. It's our quest. Today, my guest is Dr. Leanne Whitney. She has spent over 25 years researching the mind body connection, and over the last 15 plus years, their interrelation with pure consciousness. Trained in depth psychology, yoga, and craniosacral therapy, I think you'll enjoy today's interview. Hi, Leanne. Welcome to Quest.
1: Hi, Todd. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, to the interview today. I've wanted to get you on for a little while, and uh, we were able to make it work on Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, here we are. We're doing this. So um, you're you're in LA, is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. I'm west coast of the U.S. Yeah, where are you?
0: I'm in New York. You're and, New York. Uh, okay. And I think as of the week we're taping this, I think you guys are about to go into another COVID-related curfew or lockdown. Is that accurate?
1: Oh, we're really already there. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we've been encouraged for sure to be in our homes by 10 at night with bars closing. So we'll see if it closes even further at this point. But yeah, the numbers are definitely climbing.
0: Yeah, well, this has been a, a really crazy year anyways i mean not only has covid been kind of the 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 big thing all year but it was an election year there were riots protests this seems like i repeat myself in every podcast i do kind of saying the same thing because it's affected people so much and as you know from a psychological perspective i imagine probably business is booming for you (laughs) is that right
1: Yes, that's right. There's definitely, uh, sometimes I've had quite a, a waiting list. Um, you know, and what I tell my clients is it's, it's almost like we've had an earthquake at the deepest level of the collective psyche, and then everybody's having their own personal tsunami as a result. So, yeah. you know, we've been shaken, you know, at the deepest levels. First of all, illness, fear of death that's going to rattle even the most, you know, long-term yogi or meditator. Um, But, you know, on top of that, yes, being in isolation, it's definitely shaking up a lot of psychic material for a lot of people.
0: For sure. Do you, do you find in a time like where we're at in 2020 here, um, with people are losing their jobs and then all, all those things you just mentioned, the isolation and these fears, this grim feeling that's circulating, this sense of dread sort of going on. Is there an uptick in people looking for psychological help or do you think it gets harder for people to seek that help because of money issues? Did you see both sides of that or is it more one than the other?
1: Um, Well, I have to say I'm on the side obviously where they're coming to us and and my colleagues uh, at Young Ian Online, we have definitely seen an increase for sure Um, in our collective and the the, the people who are coming for assistance. So I did absolutely have a couple clients who had to drop off because um, they did lose their jobs at the beginning. So for sure, there was some of that as well. Um, But for the most part, um, there's a lot of people looking.
0: Yeah, for sure. I want to go back. I want you to tell me a little about your background and your education and kind of what was the catalyst for you moving into this career path?
1: Oh, boy, boy, that background goes really deep, but unacknowledged for a long time in my life. Um, I definitely had lots of uh, anxiety as a kid, and I would somatize uh, a lot of my experiences. Um, And when I was, boy, just out of college, um, I want to say, basically, my immune system collapsed, or I was hit with... Uh, a barrage of physical ailments Uh, I lost use of my hands I couldn't pick up a knife and a fork Uh, I couldn't make it upstairs I couldn't wash my hair Um, it was like an Epstein-Barr chronic fatigue in in the end because the symptoms basically kept morphing so the doctors couldn't pinpoint it you know they were trying to just give me meds for pain uh, help me sleep at night Uh, but boy that went on for years and I was going to the top hospitals in Boston and it wasn't until I went to see a holistic practitioner um, that really pointed me in a different direction Uh, and one of my best friends actually in England sent me a book uh, called Raw Energy which is about eating clean because um, at that time, you know, when you're losing use of your hands and you can't walk and sometimes you're in a wheelchair, you know, you want to, or I did, I wanted to eat M&M's and ice cream. You know, I was looking right. to, to soothe the pain and nobody sent me to an nutritionist. On top hospitals in Boston, nobody sent me to an, you know, they were, they were looking at the symptoms, right? And, and not looking for the big holistic perspective. Although to be, to be fair, one of the, uh, Rheumatoid specialists did say something to me at that time about mental health. She did drop the seed, but not enough. Or at that time, I guess I could say uh, I wasn't you know, aware enough to uh, really dive down that path. But coming out of it, on the other side of it, it was a spiritual crisis. It was, yeah. a, it was a collapse of everything that I knew. Uh, the death. It was a real death situation. Um, And I made it out of that, thankfully, to holistic practitioners, beginning yoga and meditation. And then when I was on the path of yoga and meditation for a couple of years, and when I had really committed to an asana practice, I had what's known in the religious studies literature as a pure consciousness event. So I had this very intense um, moment. It was a flash of light that I could say appeared, and in that moment, everything went silent, and consciousness is all there is, it's just the knowledge that was embedded in that, Um, and then that took me years, and years, and years to process, and that's what really started me on the path of the degree in depth psychology, that's what drew me to young, um, what kept me involved with yoga, and then ultimately led me into a degree.
0: Wow, incredible. And and when you were young, did you grow up spiritual or religious at all?
1: Catholic. <laughs> I yeah. uh, went to Catholic elementary school and was going to uh, church on Sundays. It was part of our school requirement. My parents would drop us off. My dad was Catholic. My mother um, was, uh, was she Uni- I think Unitarian, a form of Protestantism. Um, but they didn't always attend with us, that's for sure. Perhaps on a Christmas, but they would drop us off on a Sunday, and we would go because it was school requirement. But once I finished my elementary education, I told my parents, n- "No more." I mean, there was the opportunity to go to the Catholic high school, and I said, "I can't do it. Yeah. This, this, this isn't sitting well with me." And thankfully, they they listened and um, had the means to send me to a different high school. So.
0: Right, right. So you got two master's degrees. Is that is that right?
1: That's right. My first degree yeah. actually it was in mathematics. I, I got a master's degree in statistics. I uh, did a degree at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and then uh, never actually did anything too much with that degree. Some accounting work and, and, and bookkeeping uh, in the family business. Um, but Actually, that was right in my early 20s, and that's right when that uh, health situation that I described earlier happened. So sure. um, from there, I actually went into acting and the, the creative arts as a means of healing my emotional body from that, uh, I want to say traumatic experience and, and the experiences that had been building up from my past.
0: Sure, sure, and today you practice in Los Angeles. What type of of clients do you get? Do you have a well-rounded group of people that that come to you?
1: Type meaning what do they do for work or what kind of uh, healing arts are they looking
0: for? I I would say both, really.
1: Yes, I do, I get a broad range. I I actually work with a lot of psychologists, yoga teachers, uh, activists, reverends, let me see who else I have in there, Broadway actors, yeah, Hollywood creatives, um, accountants, so I do. I have a a broad range actually of people who, who find me and are drawn to my work. And I have a very integrative approach because I have followed the path of depth psychology and studied that path and followed the path of yoga and studied that path. Um, you know, for two, two decades in parallel. So I definitely I wanna, have a very integrative approach.
0: You do. And I want to get into that in just a second. How has your approach had to change because of COVID? You're probably doing everything on Zoom at this point. Is that right? Or are you still take in person?
1: Yes, I did. I, I don't see anyone in person at the moment. And I also actually work as a craniosacral practitioner because I really like having the hands-on aspect of my practice and i think it's a really potent healing modality um so yes so for me personally covid has presented its own challenges i I miss seeing people in person i miss the table work um you know five six hours of client work a day all online yeah just
0: is is that i'm curious i haven't really asked a psychologist this. I've had several on this year, but I've always neglect to ask this question. So is this kind of a like a self-imposed choice that doctors are making, or is this something that the state or the county is wanting to be done? Is that is that why people are switching to Zoom services, or is it just a personal choice?
1: Um some people definitely I know I have colleagues who are definitely seeing people in person. Um, Now, 70% of my business was already online because I actually see clients on five different continents. I have a very wide uh, uh, client base. Um, Sure. So a lot of my work was already online. And then uh, some of the local people, actually, yes, three that I can think of off the top of my head are the local people were people who did lose jobs at the beginning. And then my other local clients chose to see me through zoom so sure it just kind of worked that way and and I've kept it that way
0: since and in psychological with psychiatric services generally though are those those are considered an essential service though right yes yes
1: Yes.
0: as a as a professional is there a difference in working with a patient in person versus virtually does it make a difference is there a different approach that you have to take
1: I don't actually see the difference. I mean, there is an add an element of intimacy. There is no doubt in person. And especially if I do table work with a client. Um, but my approach is, is still the same. It's a very embodied, like I said, an integrative approach. Um, and I have at least, you know, uh, up, up until this point, been able to stay 100% present and focused, even though I'm, I'm looking into a screen. So as of, as of yet, I don't see any major differences, except the the only thing I would say is that breakup, you know, er, having the, the 25% or 30% that were coming in person and being able to have that um, contact. uh, I do miss it for sure.
0: One of your specialties is the craniosacral therapy. Tell me what that is.
1: So craniosacral therapy is a very non-invasive uh, healing technique. Basically we uh, touch our clients with no more weight than the weight of a nickel. It's a very soft touch approach. And um, the, 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 the long tides, basically we call them, it's, it's the craniosacral rhythm um, going from the, you know, the cranium down to the sacrum. um, There is, it's the breath of life. It's beneath, you know, we have our heartbeat, right? And we have our in-breath and our out-breath of oxygen. But beneath that, there's another rhythm uh, that we can palpate and feel inside the body. And that's the cranio-sacral rhythm. So um, the idea behind it is that when the body reaches its still point, that the healing the natural healing mechanisms of the body are called forth. so that's basically the invitation on a craniosacral table is uh inviting the client into this profound level of stillness where their body again is invited to to reset and realign and to to heal
0: how long does a session like that take? Is this a an ongoing thing? Is this, is this a thing people can do on their own eventually? Or is this always something that has to have assistance? You have to have assistance with this. Tell me more about that part of it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely hands-on for sure. There, You wouldn't um, be able to do it on your own. Um, although really the aim is very similar to a meditative practice that brings you into stillness. Um mm-hmm craniosacral is more akin almost to Reiki, um, I see. So, so that idea of the soft touch technique is holding that safe space container um, and, you know, having that healing, healing touch or compassionate hands. I would say, how long does it take? I mean, I've had really great results with people who have fairly intense anxiety and long-held complex trauma in the body um, I've seen good results in about six months of a wow. weekly a weekly visit.
0: Great, great, and then and then on an individual how on an individual basis, how long does the session actually take in your office?
1: Um, I usually uh, put them at the end of a coaching session and anywhere from twenty to forty minutes, typically.
0: Okay, great. That's very fascinating to me. Um, So, do you know much about the the history behind that? Who developed that technique? Where did that come from?
1: Well, the technique I studied um, was Upledger uh, out of Florida. Um, And if I'm remembering his first name correctly, John Upledger actually has passed away, but his uh, work carries on. Um, Franklin uh, Stills or or Stills was another uh, founder of the... Of um, the modality, um, John and Anna Chitty out of uh, Colorado uh, train a lot of people in biodynamic craniosacral therapy. So there's definitely different um, tributaries, you know, different streams going sure. on. I'm not actually really sure how long it's been around. I I, I want to say like probably around the seventies, um, uh, maybe a little bit longer.
0: Yeah. Interesting. You, so you know you've spent over 25 years researching the mind-body connection. And um, you often provide guidance beyond traditional psychotherapy. And I would assume that maybe um, this craniosacral therapy is kind of beyond what psychotherapy normally is. What else do you do beyond that?
1: Um, yes, and um you know, I have a shamanic element to my practice in the sense that I work as an as with integration for people who um, use, you know, alternative medicines, shamanic practices. Sure. Um, so uh, I definitely get that kind of clientele as well. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges. Uh, he's opened such a huge door, I think, in uh, trauma-informed medicine and trauma-informed therapy and you know there's a big turn now uh, to the body which has been so much so so needed and of course part of yoga psychology yoga philosophy since the origins of that discipline thousands of years ago uh, but we we seem to be only getting to it in the last few decades in right. the west I mean deaf psychology you know Jung and Freud definitely both turned to the body. They, they, they knew that you know, in the psyche, the psyche was hanging on to these sort of, I wanna say parasitic elements, these, these um, split off places that were you know, showing up as anxiety and you know, neurotic expressions in the body. Um, but it's continued to develop since then. And certainly the work of Stephen and polyvagal theory has really helped us take steer the ship towards the body. Bethel van der Koek, you know, the body he wrote the body keeps the score. Um, and in cranial psychotherapy, again, for those of us who fold it into our practice, you know, that's that's the umbrella idea that the body does keep the score and and talk therapy is great, um, but we need embodied practices as well. So always with my clients I make sure we set up some kind of a breathing practice or I'm I'm asking them you know weekly or however often they come bi-weekly I check in you know what's your meditation like how's your breathing practices are you doing sure. yoga what's your physical practice because we want to make sure that uh, the body is having its say
0: for sure for sure how do you feel about psychedelics surrounding the kind of the 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 world of therapy and these days. Is this, is this something that we're moving toward now more than ever? Is there more research into this? Do you feel feel societys more accepting of psychedelics? Is this moving toward legalization like marijuana has been?
1: I definitely think uh, therapeutically there's been great receptivity recently, right? So we had all that research decades ago you know over in Harvard. Um, and, and with LSD, and then that, that got shut off for decades. But now there's definitely with ketamine and uh, MDMA, ps- psilocybin, there's definitely been a turn back in that direction. So there's a lot of research going on um, and the results definitely are, are showing the, the benefits. Um, I definitely welcome it. Um, and again, that's part of what I do as an integration practitioner for, uh, I don't prescribe, but for, for people who do find their way to the, the medicines on their own, I right. assist them in, in, in integrating um, any of the information that has come forward. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I definitely see it as, as positive. Again, I think we have to mix up, mix and match. First of all, there's no recipe here. It, it isn't one stop for you know one size fits all. Um, different things work for different people. Um, and yeah, there's definitely been great results for sure. For
0: yeah. Those is, is ayahuasca part of the psychedelics world? Would you lump that into that?
1: I would consider it, yeah. I don't know any research per se that's going on with ayahuasca in this country. I do think there was some research that happened in Brazil. There may well be research here, I just don't know about it. Um, but yes, I find ayahuasca to be a powerful um, medicine myself. Um, I've utilized it maybe about half a dozen times. Um, I like to call it the blood of the mother. Uh, sure. Yes, I definitely think it can, can bring uh, great insights and great healing. And again, let's sort of um, make sure we talk about the, the safety aspects of these medicines and being in safe environments. You know before
0: one partakes of course yeah definitely
1: yeah yeah the safety is is key
0: i believe this this year oregon actually was the first state to legalize uh mushrooms which yes. may be, be the beginning of a trend of other states following suit it's probably very likely that colorado will follow next and california will probably follow uh that too but um, but that's, that's, that's pretty big. So I imagine in that regard, there will be a lot of um, at least state government oversight into this industry now. And they'll probably make, um, you, you'll probably an incredibly safe version. Is that, is that fair to say? An incredibly safe version of a, of a, of, of a psychedelic? Is that, because I, I understand like the states do kind of oversee how marijuana is made when it's legal in the state is that would that be the same thing would happen for psychedelics
1: yeah you would imagine for sure and then you you know practitioners will have to have the right license in order to actually utilize to to medicate right or prescribe
0: sure yeah sure yeah Yeah. it's very 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 interesting it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes in 20 years And, and it's odd because marijuana is not even legal in every state yet and now we're already moving toward like psychedelics becoming legal in states, so it's very interesting dynamic of what's uh, what's going on and how people are are adapting to it or understanding it. Um, but you know, I'm not, I don't take any pharmaceuticals at all. I've never been prescribed any pharmaceuticals uh, for anything. And I'm, you know, I would be lying if I said I didn't experiment with things in my youth. But you know, I'm not really, I don't really fall one way or another on on drugs at all, on anything. Um, so it's interesting for me to think about how psychedelics will, will affect people and what, what that's going to open in their minds. And what I find fascinating about, about you is you, you, you really kind of have this, uh, really interesting, uh, open mind to all these other types of practices where I have a lot of people, um. That are psychologists that really have a very rigid stance on things in terms of it's talk therapy and it's this type of method and there's no spirituality in anything and they completely remove God and religion from the equation. And it really closed off in a way. And then I, I see the, the how you kind of have adopted your practice and I really like this approach to it.
1: Well, I mean, my roots are in depth psychology, the Jungian oriented um, branch of depth psychology and that was part of Jung's great gift uh, to the West. He did so much um, for the Christian West to, um, you know, encourage the turn towards nature, encourage the turn towards shamanism um to be open and and definitely you know to welcome to discern for sure um but to stay very open and and you know to welcome and not get stuck in uh the rational minds that you know we need to move actually i want to say beyond i don't know what the right preposition is there um <laughs> it can't just be about the rational mind. In other words, that's not gonna bring us to the answer. Again, that the body has to fold in that spirituality, the numinous, the psychic, the astrological, the cosmic, the synchronicity. Man, that's what Young that's the legacy that he left behind. And I'm very much of that tradition and very grateful and thankful to be of that uh, that tradition, you know, and and part of part of Jung's legacy was the religious function of the psyche that this is uh, part and parcel of who we are. And, y- you know um, you can, you know, turn away from the gods, so to speak, but they do, they will turn up in other form. Right. Yes. Yeah. So um, yes, for, for sure. Part of my practice absolutely is the spiritual and the numinous.
0: You made a documentary film called The Fire Within. Tell me about that project and what, what influenced that.
1: Yes. So that was, um, as I mentioned, you know, I, once I was ill, I took a turn towards creativity and the arts. And so I was doing some acting and I was on front of the camera, but the digital film, you know, revolution was in full swing. And I was like, huh you know, maybe I could make something. And because of my experience with illness and not knowing whether I was going to live or die, um, gave me an interest in AIDS at that time. So this was in 99, 2000. Um, I had been to an AIDS ride, actually. I think it was the Boston to New York, actually. The Boston to New York AIDS ride and I was at the finish line and it was just so inspiring to me. And I sort of downloaded the whole idea of the film and I was living in between Boston and New York at the time. And I, and I moved to L.A. shortly thereafter. And I just went for it. And I, you know, I kept up my creativity and decided to, yeah, to go for it and make a film. And I so much enjoyed doing it. I, I hope to make another one at some point, for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, what kind of reception did you get from that? And, and, and tell me a de- little bit more of the details about what you were doing in the documentary. You said it was about... It was about AIDS, but was it, about a, it was about a particular person, right?
1: Yes, that's right. I followed a, a husband and a wife, actually, a heterosexual couple, a man who um, had shared a needle one time, actually. And uh, he came from a, you know, a childhood where he grew up foster home to foster home. Uh, he didn't know his father. His mother had died when he was really young. So he was looking for love, could we say, in all the wrong places, Um hmm. And, you know, looking to connect and certainly medicate his pain away. Uh, and he found himself sharing a needle at one point in his life. Um, boy, the dates are beyond me now, but it would have been sort of in the early 80s, um, yeah. maybe 82, 83. And, yeah, he, he shared a needle and he, he got HIV and, you know... Um, He's one of the oldest living, actually I've lost a little contact with him right now. I don't know where he is at the minute. I haven't spoken to him in a in a couple of years now. Um, but yeah, a, a long-term survivor of that virus for sure. And of course, now here we find ourselves in another pandemic. So it's that's kind of an interesting um, circuitous uh, Certainly. part, right? That, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that pandemic to this <clears throat> pandemic.
0: And he actually took a lot of experimental therapies, didn't he? And many of them were, were fairly painful.
1: Oh, yeah. Because back in the day, right? It wasn't just one pill. Uh, when people had AIDS back in you know the early 2000s, um, well, it was really, a co- right? cocktail. Right. Of- that's right. Right. That's yeah. right. Uh, into the early 2000s. I think it was not until about mid 2000s maybe 2005 2006 or something when they started developing could be off on the dates there but it was much less of a cocktail you could take one maybe two pills um and now of course hiv is seen as something you know that one can live with and not die from but still a lot of people have side effects from these medicines and that's where that movie you know though outdated from the cocktail perspective and certainly from the death rate perspective um you know those side effects definitely still um catch some people really unawares. so it, it, you know nobody nobody wants that virus even though it's again it's become less of a death threat certainly that it was at that time
0: right right for sure wow yeah and it's interesting because you know that kind of came out of you know kind of came out of nowhere it was yeah, i'm 50 years old so i kind of remember the beginning of hearing the talk about this um you know this disease and i'm drawing a blank now what it was called before they had the aids name put on it they had a different term for it and uh, it
1: was, yeah it was arc aids related or something really aids related complex i think before let me think you're right it was definitely yeah. arc for a bit aids related complex but yeah 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 it Boy. had
0: it had a different acronym and then it became mm-hmm. it became aids and i remember kind of that whole thing and you know no one well, I think have a lot of people speculating how it, was, how it was caused, but it was just kind of like wildfire for many years, and no one could really get a grasp on it. It was terrifying, and, and here we see the same, really kind of the same thing happening with this pandemic today, and, um, and a lot of fear.
1: Yes, that's right. Remember, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I, I, uh, sorry, if my memory serves me correctly, they had tracked down patient zero. I want to say it was like a flight attendant out of Canada. Um they really did contact tracing um yeah. at the beginning of that pandemic for sure and, and yeah. were able to do it you know seems like far more successfully than we were able to do it uh this time around yeah so there was a lot of fear going on at that time right but but a but a fluid based disease right it, it yeah. a, it's a it's a fluid based disease so uh much different than an airborne disease um but but interesting now that that yeah we've both lived through these these two pandemics.
0: You know uh, it's um, it's interesting that, that the the you know the military kind of have their you know their group of doctors that will um, you know provide medical information to just the military, and then of course you have kind of our Dr. Fauci's and the heads of our government that kind of tell the public about things. And for many years um, the Kind of the basic training guides that people in the military would get did discuss uh like hiv and aids being something that was airborne they believed it to be airborne and they would tell people in the military how to handle situations in which someone may have hiv or aids and, and treating it as airborne so it's interesting the different perspectives between different parts of the government on how they treat it and uh, maybe it's just an over precaution possibly maybe it's different information it's it's always interesting to see. And uh, I want to ask you this. So at the time of this, this podcast won't come out for a few weeks, but at the time we're recording this, um, we have, you know, several pharmaceutical companies that are providing a vaccine for COVID. And I'm curious, your perspective on this. Do you think we're really going to get people to to really want to take this vaccine, considering it's something that's been so incredibly rushed, and you already have a lot of people that are kind of the anti-vaxxers anyways, that they themselves won't wanna take it nor give it to their children. Are we really gonna look at a nationwide vaccination here? Or are we gonna be looking at actually very small percentage of people? And also there's a a financial part of this, like no one's really talking about the cost of this drug yet either.
1: Yes, well, I definitely have for sure. Um, It's on my research list because I do, uh, believe and you could correct me here if you, if you know that this vaccine is being made actually a little bit differently than other vaccines and it has something to do with our RNA. Um, and so that is my concern there and again I, I know very little it's on my research list I have not done it yet. Um, but that certainly would make me hesitant. To get the vaccine, or to have my son get the vaccine, um, and and so I, I yeah, I, I definitely think um, there will be a lot of anti-vaxxers out there who will not be interested just from the get-go because it's they're not interested in any kind of vaccine. Um, and now again, I haven't done the research yet, but where from where I sit right at this m- minute, I do think people skepticism is warranted for sure um you know we need a lot more information and because it, it is working with our, our rna if i am correct there i mean you don't you don't even know uh how long that might perhaps go awry in our bodies so and of course yeah. viruses can always mutate we know this from hiv right you know viruses right. can always be mutating So I'd like to see the research, too, on if we do get the vaccine, you know, what does that mean for mutating strands? Is this only for one strand of the virus? Is it for multiple strands? What if it mutates again? Um, You know, we have definitely had, right, polio, smallpox, there definitely have been vaccines out there that have been very successful against viruses, Um, but... And again. I'm 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 limited because I haven't done the the full research yet. If, sure. if it has something to do with our RNA, it's going to play out perhaps differently. We don't know yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 me as a consumer, really, I have no medical experience whatsoever to even justify saying anything about this. But just from the perspective of I've only really known about COVID since February and this vaccine is rushed out this quickly, is frightening to me. <laughs> and it really makes me not want to get it. And, um, and, I, and I hear these rumors and these little rumblings out there about how you know people, they're gonna keep track of who has the vaccine and who's taken it. And it may affect your ability to fly in the future. It may affect your ability to go to concerts in the future on whether or not you've gotten the vaccine. And I feel like I, there's a lot of threatening situations that could be coming from this. And uh, and it worries me.
1: Uh, I he- hear you. Um, and I've heard those those stories as well. It's so hard right now to know what's coming out as conspiracy theory and what's coming out as, you know, uh, real truth. Um, sure. You know, it is real, there's just, we are flooded with misinformation and disinformation and all facts. Um, I think this is a real time for us to, and this is what I tried to do in my book, Consciousness and Young and Patanjali, I tried to really focus in by looking at the work of Jung and by looking at the work of Patanjali back to back. Um, I really wanted to shine a light on the differences within the academy of ontology and epistemology, ontology being the reality of our being, right? Reality doesn't change. The real is the real. Ontolo- uh, epistemology is how do we know the world? You know, sure. what, what kind of ways do we know? And, and right now we have a very, very corrupt epistemology in that, I would say is because we don't have a ground of an ontology in order to anchor that epistemology in. So it's a really interesting time in which we live um, as far as the academy goes, the kind of respect it deserves, the kind of skepticism it deserves. And, you know, how is it that we know the world? How are we going to be able to move forward now? Especially as, you know, technology just continues to mushroom and grow at an exponential rate uh, where, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, right, where, you you know, you have to become very discerning of whether you're looking at a human being or whether somebody has put some kind of you know, robot in front of you, but that's indistinguishable from a real human being. I mean, there definitely is tech coming out in the very near future that, and it's already out there, really. We have to, we have to become very discerning and we have to get a grip on how it is that we know what we know.
0: For sure. And
1: I think that's going to have to... My vision right now, anyway, you know, it has to do with this, also this turn towards the body, the body keeps the score. True nature is true nature, you can split your mind off and fantasize, create all kinds of narratives, you can get that, you know, the neocortex, all fired up and, you know, telling lots of stories, but in the end, where the embodied mind and we're sitting inside a body and the body is keeping the score of all of this, whether it be, you know, the cortisol levels going through the roof and, you know, adrenal fatigue, by the time we're 30, something that's going on in our gut, you know, we're unable to digest food or we're bloated or um, uh, colitis, something like that, you know, that the body is keeping the score on out of this. and, And I think as the research, keeps moving forward for the mind body connection and we put that back together we're going to have a greater ground with which, with which to stand against falsities that once we come back into our bodies um and we're regulated then we're going to have a much better uh, approach to the truth than we have Absolutely. right now right now Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Those
0: are, those are beautiful words to kind of wrap the podcast up with (laughs) for sure. I mean, that's great. I can't say that any better. I want to know. So um, before we end, I want to know, what do you do for your own self-therapy and healing? Do you have a daily practice? Do you do yoga, meditation, prayer? Like what's, what are you into day to day?
1: I do. I usually have a gratitude practice first thing in the morning and some breath work. Um, I do, I meditate between my clients, I go, you know, in nature, I have a dog, so she's actually part of my therapy, uh, my daily, right. you know, keeping myself um, aligned, for sure. And yes, I, I do yoga, but I also walk, walking for me, also getting out, getting my body moving, because I, I, I tend to sit a lot with, you know, five or six hours of client work a day. So, you know, making sure, absolutely, because I bring my whole self to my work. So I work as an embodied practitioner. So I have to make sure, you know, my body is here and is receptive, uh, you know, the the, right? Because we always tend to think the mind is in the brain. And while certainly we can correlate the mind to the brain, the mind is also in the heart and the mind is in the gut. And so, you know, we got three minds going on. So we got to make sure every day that 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 energy is flowing throughout, you know, those three core areas, but throughout the whole body. So we're able to be as aware and as present as we can.
0: There is a lot of science in that now, actually, that uh, that chakras are basically many, many brains, many minds. And uh, right. It's, uh, it's, it's something that's been known for a long time in other parts of the world is just really now science is catching up with to support that. How can people find you out there on, uh, on the interwebs? Do you have a .com, are you on social media?
1: I do, I have a .com, LeanneWhitney.com, uh, social media. Yes, I think that's how we connected, right? Uh, I'm on yeah. Instagram, uh, it's Dr. D-R LeanneWhitney.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, the same, Dr. Leanne Whitney, at Facebook. And yeah, I think that's it. I do have some YouTube videos and, and other podcasts, um, but those can be found actually on the media page of, of my website. Or if you put my name in, in the YouTube search bar, some of those interviews will yeah. come up as well.
0: And there's some great interviews on that too. So definitely, if you're listening to this, go check out the media page of Her website because there's a lot of a lot of really cool interviews that you give
1: oh thank you thank you and thank you for inviting me to have have this talk with you well Leanne
0: it was was, thank you so much for uh for coming out today and we'll talk soon okay sounds great take care bye-bye you too have it. My interview with Dr. Whitney. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next week on Quest. Thank you for listening to Quest. Please be sure to rate and review this podcast. This podcast is produced by Todd Fisher and distributed by Metacortex Publishing. This podcast is copyrighted previously trademarked or copyright content issued by permission. And be sure to visit the official website for the International Association of Metacomics at metacomics.org or find us on social media for other media content. And make sure to pick up a copy of the book that started the spiritual revolution Metacomics to Grand Design available for sale online and at most major bookstores.